Let's begin our time this morning by praying together. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in these next moments to see Christ rightly, Lord. And I amen my brother's prayer earlier this morning, Lord, that you would remove every distraction in our life. That we can hear your word. And we ask God as your people, as your church, that all across this room, Lord, that you would help us to know nothing in the next hour except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. God, we pray and we ask, Lord, to, to, that you would restore the joy of our salvation, God. And that you would overwhelm us, Lord, with your love and your mercy and your grace that you have revealed to a sinful world through the death of your son. God bless the reading and the preaching of your word today. And we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, both to speak and to hear your words rightly. Come exalt Christ in our midst, Lord. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Because of how cold it is this morning and how unprepared some of you were for it to be cold, I want to ask you to stand. We're going to stand together and we're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 22. So, so stand up and I want to ask you to read God's word with me. Um, Genesis chapter 22. Okay. I'm going to do something uh, uh, really strange. I'm going to ask you to sit back down. We're not going to quite read Genesis 22 yet. So sit back down. <laughs> sit back down. We'll do that a few more times so that you can warm up this morning. Okay. Genesis chapter 22 is meant to provoke a very searching question in a human heart. Okay. And I want to give you that question and get you thinking about these things. Um, before we even get to Genesis 22. And the things that I want us to think about this morning is how much does your relationship with God cost you? Okay. Jesus, when he invites people to follow him, he invites them with these words. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And I want you to think about that this morning. How much does your relationship with God cost you or to think about it another way okay i want you to ponder this question this morning personally how much could god ask of you to where he reaches the limit in your life where you say god that's too much lord what you're asking of me once you cross this line lord that's too much that's too much of you to ask me okay so i want you to think about that this morning one of the marks of religion throughout human history has been expressing the worth of deities through sacrifice. Okay? You can trace that in all different religions of the world. That the deity, the, the worth of the deity is shown through sacrifice to that deity. Okay? And the idea is how much are you willing to sacrifice to your God? Okay? In the ancient Near East, as we um, come into Genesis 22, into the story of Abraham, 
He's living in the ancient Near East. And their worldview is no different. Okay? We have sacrifice to false gods. To secure the favor of deities. To express loyalty to deities. Okay? And express the worth of deities. And in the ancient Near East, there were false gods that actually commanded the ultimate sacrifice. And that was the sacrifice of children. Child sacrifice was not unheard of in the ancient Near East. And it was actually popular among the followers and the worshipers of Molech. Okay? And they're calling for the ultimate sacrifice of their children. And as these worshipers put their children on the altar, they are trying to secure the favor of the deity, the false god. And at the same time, they're proclaiming their loyalty to their deity of whatever false god it is. I'm holding nothing back from you. I'll sacrifice it all for you, even my own children. And this is the religious climate that Abraham lived in. Okay. So I want you to think about this question that Abraham is about to face in Genesis 22. Are the followers of Yahweh less committed to the one true God than the worshipers of false gods committed to those false gods? Are the worshipers of Yahweh less committed to their God? Or spin the question, does Yahweh demand less of his followers than the false gods demand of their followers? Okay. And Abraham... Is going, to, is going to have to be forced to answer this question in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, Abraham is going to be reminded and every one of us today are going to be reminded that the God of Scripture, the one true God, he demands total allegiance. Okay, He demands the total allegiance of his followers. And Abraham is about to be tested to the absolute limits of. Of his commitments to Yahweh. God is about to call. For the sacrifice. Of his son. Okay? And I want to say this. Before we read this chapter together. Okay? That as we see this. We can come to some wrong conclusions. And the wrong conclusion is this. That Yahweh is just like those false gods. Yahweh wants the children on the altar. Just like those false gods. And that's a wrong conclusion. And I want to catch that on the front end this morning. So that we can press into what the story reveals to us about God and his gospel. And it is simply not the case that Yahweh is like the false gods. That Yahweh approves child sacrifice like the false gods. In fact, this is forbidden explicitly in scripture. I was just reading this week. The prophet Jeremiah, when he's dealing with the sins of the worshipers of Molech. And he's calling out these sins. And he's saying about child sacrifice specifically. He's saying that you're doing something so wicked. God says that it didn't even come into my mind. What you're doing didn't even come into my mind. As far as what I would require. It is explicitly forbidden in the word of God. And so what we're going to see in Genesis 22. Is we're going to see God do two things at the same time. And the first thing is he's going to show that he demands just as much allegiance. He demands total and absolute allegiance from his followers. 
But in the same event, he's going to differentiate himself from the false gods because he actually doesn't even intend for Abraham to go through with this sacrifice. And we're going to see that play out, that there's something really unique that God is revealing about himself in this chapter of Scripture. And in fact, as we read the Bible, never again does God call for the sacrifice of a son until we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there's some very intentional things that this story is pointing us to. And I want us to know that at the very beginning. Okay, let's read this chapter together. Genesis chapter 22. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. It says this. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And arose. And went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes. And saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn, its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son 
I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told Abraham, behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Camuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Fildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makkah. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. So I want us to think about this test that God gives to Abraham. And I want us to think about at the very beginning the difference of where we sit as we read this story and where Abraham is as he's hearing these words. Because we have the benefit of knowing that God was going to stop him. Okay? But I want to remind us that Abraham did not know that. Okay? We have knowledge that he did not have. He didn't have that knowledge because God was testing him. God was testing Abraham. And so I want us to consider the cost of this command that God gives as those words come into his heart. Okay? Of what has God commanded him to do? And no less than ten times in this passage, we, we're, we're confronted with the word son. Okay? Abraham, I want you to do something with your son. And those words are hitting the very dearest place of Abraham's heart. In fact, look at verse 2 and how God repeats this. And, and, just, and just drives this in of how costly this sacrifice is going to be. Verse 2, he says this, your son. And then he says this, your only son, Isaac. And then he says this, whom you love. That's the one I'm talking about. Abraham's other son, Ishmael, has been, has been cast away. He's no longer around. This is now Abraham's, Abraham's only son, Isaac. And the Bible tells us that he loved his son. This is the son of promise. And he loves him. Whom you love. So that's, the, that's on the one hand. Something's about to happen with this son whom you love. And what does God call this man to do? And we see this phrase. At the end of verse 2, he says, offer him there as a burnt offering. The son that you love, I want you to give him up as a burnt offering. And I want us to think about the costliness of that sacrifice. What is a burnt offering, brothers and sisters? This is an offering given to God by fire. Okay, That the subject was placed upon burning wood. And in this offering, they were burned until there was nothing left. A burnt offering is completely consumed. And this is what God is calling him to do. 
Okay? Take this only son that you love, that you love, and turn him into nothing but smoke and ashes. There's going to be nothing left. Okay? And I want you to think about the costliness of that. And the very limits of your commitments of God, his commitments of God, are being tested with these words. There would be nothing left of his son. He was to be given up as a burnt offering. And as we consider that question for ourselves, how far we are willing to go in our loyalty to Yahweh before, before we turn and we say, God, that is too much. You're asking me of too much. And if we were honest with ourselves all across this room, it's to our shame that it would take much less than this to cause us for our knees to buckle and say, God, that's too much. You're asking me of too much. And that's to our shame that we have this this imaginary line that that if God asks for this, we won't cross it. Okay. Things as silly as God asking you to give up a certain amount of your income or do this certain good work that's going to be really, really hard. Okay. Or change this vocation that's going to be costly in some worldly sense. And all kinds of things less than this would cause us to buckle our knees and say, God, is too much. But look at this man. His commitments are tested to the ultimate limits. And what does he do? His knees don't buckle. And he does not say, God, you're asking too much. I want you to think about this. Any parent in this room, I want you to try to put yourself in, in, in the mindset and the emotions of Abraham. Okay? Any parent in this room that has a, 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 a child that you love and imagine uh, that, that this is being called for to be given up as a burnt offering to the Lord. I want you to imagine his heart in anguish. In anguish. But God has his ultimate loyalties. God has his ultimate loyalties. And I want you to think about this. And we can't lose this as we read this story. Because there's all kind of things. If you read this as personal and normative only. There's all kind of problems. Okay. Not only if you try to sacrifice your son. Not only will we kick you out of Grace Community Church. But we will see to it that you get put in prison. Okay. This is not something that is to be repeated uh, in Scripture. It's not something that's normative for followers of Christ. And so there's something very unique about this story. And the thing that's going to help us is we can't ever lose sight of the uniqueness of this family. Okay? This is a real father and it's a real son. But it's a unique father and a unique son. This is a unique family. And so who is this that is about to be put on the altar? Not just any son, okay? He's the son of promise. He is the chosen descendant of Abraham. Through the lineage of Isaac, God has sworn that he will bring forth the Christ who is to come, okay? So when we go to, to Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1, this is how he's going to get into the world. It's through the lineage of this chosen family, okay? And so there's something way more at stake than, than, than just merely this father-son relationship. This is the chosen son of promise. So I want you to think about this. 
At this point in history, Isaac is literally the embodiment of God's promises of salvation to the ends of the earth. And the death of Isaac at this point in history, it it literally means the death of the entire gospel. And that all hope for any salvation from sin is cut off forever. And so there's all kind of pictures in place in, in this story of the uniqueness of this family. And I want us to see, how does Abraham respond to this? Only son that you love. Turn him into nothing but smoke and ashes. And the Bible tells us that he obeys. He obeys. He obeys immediately. And we see that in in, in this text. It says that he rises early. I want you to think about that. Okay. He rises early. And probably as I've meditated on that over the years. I picture a man that didn't sleep an ounce that night. As he's considering what's about to happen to his son. And and he rises up early in the morning and he moves out in obedience to God. He chops the wood, he gathers the wood together for this offering. He grabs his servants and he grabs his son. And he begins to move out in obedience to Yahweh. No matter the cost. And then think about this. This wasn't like this flash in the pan reflex of God says do it. And he doesn't even think about it and just does it in a moment. That's not what happens. Put yourself in his, in his situation. Three days he journeys towards this mountain. Okay, This is not flash in the pan um, obedience. This is resolute obedience. That this man has counted the cost. And he has resolved to obey Yahweh no matter the cost. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that mindset that for 72 hours you continue moving forward in obedience to God with these thoughts tormenting in your mind of what's about to happen with your only son whom you love. And yet he moves forward. In verse 6, we come to this place where, where the, the mountain gets too steep for the donkey. And Abraham tells his servants to stay with the donkey. And, father and the, son, the father and the son finish the last ascent up the mountain side by side. And they're walking together alone. And I want you to think about that moment. If you're Abraham and, and the demands of God are laid upon you. I want you to think about the mindset. He is walking beside his son. His only son. Whom he loves. And he knows that in a matter of minutes. He knows that God is calling him to end this this boy's life. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about all the competing things in his heart. And and the absolute anguish. Emotional anguish. That this father is in. I want you to put yourself there if you're a parent. He's watching his little boy walk up the mountain beside him, climb up the mountain beside him. Think about all the things that he knows about this boy. He remembers his birth that was prophesied and promised. He was the son of old age, the son of promise. And he remembers God answering this promise and giving him this little boy. He remembers the birth of Isaac. He remembers his 
infant years and his toddler years. He knows when his, he remembers those moments where his little boy learned to walk and learned to talk. And his little boy's personality started coming out of how God shaped him and molded him. He remembers all the times where he leaned in and began to teach him about Yahweh, the one true God, and the worship of the one true God, and the call of the one true God on their family. He knows all the memories that they've made together. And he knows how much joy that this little boy has brought into the life of this old man. Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And all those things are, are flooding into his mind. And yet, at the same time, he knows that all of those memories are about to be turned to nothing. The son will be completely consumed, given as a burnt offering to God. And the amazing thing is that he keeps moving forward. He keeps moving forward. All these thoughts all this affection for his son, and there's no, there's no mention of stopping, turning around, only moving forward in obedience to God. This is mind-blowing sacrifice. Mind-blowing obedience to Yahweh. And I want us to pause right there, and I want us to consider this, okay? What drives this man up this mountain? What could possibly drive Abraham up the mountain side by side with his son with a blade in his hand? Now, I want you to think about that. What drives men and women today to sacrifice to God? Costly sacrifice to the one true God. Holding nothing back from the Lord. I want you to think about this. Was it his willpower that drove him up the mountain on this holy day. Is that the picture that we get in Genesis 22? That this is bootstrap obedience. Okay? Going hardcore for the Lord. More hardcore than anybody else. I, is that what we see in Genesis 22? You think you're hardcore? I'm more hardcore than all of them. Okay? Willpower's not getting him up the mountain in Genesis 22. Self-confidence is not getting him up the mountain in Genesis 22. No, what does verse 5 tell us? It tells us that the thing that is driving Abraham up the mountain with all these emotional turmoil and all this anguish in this man's heart and his mind. tells us that the thing that is driving him up the mountain is his faith. His faith. His confidence in God. So listen to this. In verse 5, he turns to his servants and he says these words. He says, me and the boy are going to worship. And then he says, and me and the boy are returning. We are going to worship and we are returning. The writer of Hebrews picks up on these words and it tells us that Abraham had resurrection faith. He did not believe that God was going to stop him. He believed that after he gave his son as a burnt offering to God, God was going to raise him from the dead. So the thing that is driving him to this place of unthinkable obedience is confidence in God. Listen to it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested... Offered up Isaac. 
And when he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I want you to think about that this morning. That's faith. That is confidence in God. That, that, that not only is nothing to be withheld from Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, nothing is too difficult for Yahweh. And where we might see a problem in an earthly sense, God, the one true God has no problem at all of keeping His Word. And so what did God say? Is this just a man, you know, uh, 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 you know, baptizing uh, something that he wants to happen and baptizing it and saying God's going to do it. No, he has a word from God. God gave him a promise, a very specific promise. And he said, Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The God who can never lie told him that there was going to be a family lineage through Isaac. And that happened. It hasn't happened yet. And Abraham came to the conclusion that, that God will not let that promise fall to the ground. God will raise him from the dead. What would give a man this kind of confidence is the promises of God. The explicit promises of God. And we think back to how gracious God has been in Abraham's life. Remember back in Genesis 15. This is the same man who saw the one true God. In physical form, walking through at that oath ceremony, walking through the the sacrifices that were cut in half. And and the one true God invokes a curse on himself. And he basically says, Abraham, I will die before my promises to you fall to the ground. And we have an example of a man standing on the word of God. That even in an earthly sense, if I can't see any path forward, God will not allow these promises to fall to the ground. Conclusion, he's going to raise him from the dead. And so this is a principle for us. Okay, What drives us to do hard things for the Lord, sacrifice for the Lord, costly obedience for the Lord? And the answer to that is the promises of God. And we need to learn that principle because it's all over the word of God that the promises of God drive and empower obedience to the commandments of God. Okay, the promises of God drive and empower obedience to the commandments of God. If all you have is commandments, you don't have enough. You have no power. You need promises. Okay. And we see a picture of a man and he's going up a mountain with the commandments of God in his, in his left hand, so to speak, and the promise of God in his right hand, so to speak. And the promise is driving him to unthinkable obedience. And the same is true for us today. Why would a man or a woman ever deny themselves and take up their cross? It's because they get to follow Jesus. You mean I can and you mean I have to deny myself? You mean I have to take up my cross? Oh, wait a second. Did you mean I get Jesus at the end of that self-denial? And at the end of that cross-bearing life? This is what drives our obedience to costly sacrifice to the Lord our God. As he's ascending up the mountain, he's not saying, I will provide for myself. That's not what we see. It's not bootstrap. 
Christianity. He's going up the mountain and we see a man filled with confidence in God saying, God will provide for himself. And some of us who get really discouraged across the body of Christ is because we're looking to the wrong thing. Okay? And you say, I can never be like so-and-so or so-and-so. And I can never live the Christian life like so-and-so or so-and-so. And that phrase just exposes that you have your eyes on the wrong place. So-and-so and so-and-so didn't get mature in Christ and, and, and laying down their life for the glory of Jesus Christ by, 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 by I will provide for myself. I can do it. They got that obedience by looking to Christ. And that's the principle for us. That, that, that the discouragement comes and it lands on us because we're looking at ourselves and not looking to the Lord. This is how obedience is always empowered all across the word of God. And in Romans chapter 1, it's given this beautiful title. And it's called the obedience of faith. It's the only kind of faith, the only kind of obedience that glorifies God. Because it's the only kind of obedience that glorifies the indwelling Christ who empowers this obedience. So we have faith driving the man up the mountain to unthinkable sacrifice for the Lord. And I want us to zone in on verse 9. This is things slowed down. And we have our attention drawn to this crisis moment. So they're there. They've made the ascent. And they've reached the place that God has commanded them. And the Bible tells us that this man, um, he builds an altar. And knowing just in a matter of minutes what's about to happen. And then it says he arranges the wood. Verse 9. Next, he binds his son. I want you to imagine how vivid that is. That he binds his son. That he loves. And then the text tells us that he lays Isaac on the altar. Verse 10. Then he reaches for the blade. And he's got the blade in his hand. The son is bound on the altar. And he is just moments away from sinking the blade and ending his son, his only son's life in obedience to God. Nothing held back from the Lord. Nothing held back from the Lord. So this is how Abraham would have answered that question. What could God ask of you? And you'd say, God, it's too much. God, you're asking for too much. And the way that Abraham would answer that question is nothing. I will withhold nothing from Yahweh. We get a picture of his obedience. I want you to imagine how gut-wrenching that was. Just a series of questions for you to consider. Do you think he was crying when that happened? Do you think there were tears in his eyes? As he has the blade in his hand and his son is bound on the altar. What about his heartbeat? Think it's beating real fast or real slow? What about his, his skin? Do you think the man is sweating? Do you think that how, how, how clear is his concentration in, the, in this moment? Do you think his hands were sweaty? Do you think his hands were shaking? What do you think he was specifically thinking about, about his son as he looked on his son bound on the altar? This vivid moment where nothing is held back from Yahweh, even in the midst of all that emotional turmoil, nothing is held back. He's obedient to the Lord. 
And then I want us to think about, but he's not the only one who's obedient in this story. Isaac is also obedient to the Lord. And this is something that's overlooked in this passage a lot of times when we read it. The text tells us in verse 6 that Isaac is old enough to have a cord of wood on his back and to hike up a mountain to the place to where God has shown him. That God has shown them. And so this text, and not only that, we know at this point in the Genesis narrative that Abraham is over a hundred years old at this point. Okay? So we have a son that is strong enough to to bear the load up the mountain, and we have a father who's over a hundred. And yet, in verse 9, we are told that the boy is bound. And everything in the narrative points to Isaac is the stronger, the faster, and the younger of the two. And yet, verse 9, Isaac is bound. And what we see in this story is the willingness of Isaac. He is willing to hold nothing back from Yahweh. He is also willing to hold nothing back from the Lord. And, And even if this means giving my life, nothing will be held back. From Yahweh. The boy does not resist. There's no, no hint of it in the text. He's willing to be slaughtered at Yahweh's command. And the, the question becomes, what, what would drive a boy to do something like that? And the answer is the same thing. It's not bootstrap obedience. It's faith in the one true God. The same faith that dwells in Abraham dwells in Isaac. The same faith that dwells in the Father dwells in the Son. And there's confidence. He has confidence and trust in his Father and his Father's God. And what we see in verse 13 is that at the last possible moment, at the last possible moment, the God of all grace steps in and he stops the death of this child. And he stops it. And God's test has been passed. Everything that God desired had been accomplished in Abraham's life. It was not ever the will of God for the blood of Isaac to actually be spilt on the altar. The God of Scripture does not approve human sacrifice. And so he steps in and he stops it at the very last moment. And not only does he stop the death of the boy, verse 13 tells us that he provides... Listen closely. A lamb to be slaughtered. Listen to these few words. Instead of his son. A lamb to be slaughtered instead of his son. And those words frame up a theme that runs through the entire Bible. Genesis to Revelation called substitutionary atonement. That God in this holy moment, in this crisis moment on the mountain, he provided a substitutionary sacrifice, a substitute, one who would die instead of the son. The Bible teaches us of why this is necessary. Why it's necessary that someone die in place of another is that the Bible teaches us that we deserve death because of our sins. And the righteousness of God demands a payment for our sins. And yet that same Bible tells us that the God of all grace has provided 
a substitutionary sacrifice for us. That someone can die instead of us. That a lamb can die instead of us. In fact, that becomes so central in the entire message of the Bible that the Christian gospel can be summarized with this phrase. The lamb has died instead of us. That's how central these things are through, through all the word of God. So this story is pointing forward to this ultimate sacrifice that God is going to give. The, the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. And this, this story is pointing forward through time to this ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that. Not only with this substitution thing running through all of Scripture, but we know that by an explicit prophecy in verse 14. So I want you to see this. As this lamb is provided and this exchange happens on this mountain, there's a prophetic marker given to this geographic, specific geographic location. So I want you to see this. Where this happened on Mount Moriah, God commanded that this would happen at a very specific place, did he not? He said on the mountain, go to the land of Moriah and do it, not wherever you want, but on the mount that I will show you. He demanded that this story happen at a very specific place. And this exchange of a substitute happened at a very specific place. And walking away from, from Mount Moriah that day, Abraham named that place. And he named it, the Lord will provide. And the question is what? And he, and he named it, the Lord will provide. And, and the implication is a substitute. God will provide a substitute. Okay, The words Jehovah Jireh, this is where they come from in our text. And man... We'd be in a lot better shape if every time the word, somebody heard the word Jehovah Jireh, that they thought in this category, that those words are given in a context of a man expressing faith in God. God, you're going to provide a substitute and not in the context of Jehovah Jireh. God, you're going to provide a Cadillac. God, you're going to provide a Lexus. God, I got this kind of job, but you're going to give me this kind of job. So that word Jehovah Jireh has been hijacked in our culture. And we're losing the beauty of what it means in the word of God. God will provide a substitute. A substitutionary sacrifice. And that's what Abraham names this place. Walking away from Genesis 22. And what happens in verse 14 is subsequent generations in Israel, they pick up on Abraham's name and they carry forward this prophecy. And we find these words at the end of verse 14. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Genesis 22 prophesies. That a substitute will be provided on the mount of the Lord. So I want us to see what God has given us in Genesis 22. It's a beautiful gift that glorifies Jesus Christ. So let's think about this spot, this territory on planet earth that was marked with a prophetic label. 
On this mount, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's fast forward throughout history and let's see what happens in this geographic location. So as time rolls forward, a city would be founded on this exact same place, on this exact same mountain. And the earliest inhabitants of this city were known as the Jebusites and the city was called Jebus. The Jebusites and Jebus. King David overthrew the Jebusites and inhabited this city about 1,000 years after Genesis 22. And from that time forward, the city was called by several different names. I'll give you a few. Salem, Ariel, Zion, the city of God. And what we know it by today is the city of Jerusalem. It is a city that is founded on top of Mount Moriah, also known as Mount Zion. The entire city sits at the top of this mountain. In fact, every time you see, this is why you see that phrase over and over again in Scripture, that as the Jews began to pilgrim their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it's always said that they would go up to Jerusalem. The entire city sits on top of Mount Zion. The same mountain as Mount Moriah. So I want you to think about this. Okay. The only other time that this word Moriah is mentioned in Scripture is 2 Chronicles chapter 3. I want to ask you to turn there with me for, for just a moment. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. We're going to read verse 1 together. says this, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So this story connects a few dots for us. And it points us back to this plot of land that David purchased from the Jebusites. And you can go back and read that in 1 Samuel chapter 24. That a plague broke out and and the angel of the Lord was standing on this plot of ground and he was slaughtering people. And Abraham, I mean, and David buys this plot of land from the Jebusites so he could offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And this was this. Geographic territory that was marked Mount Moriah. When he passes the torch to his son Solomon, it falls to Solomon to build the temple of the Lord. And we see that in Second Chronicles chapter three, verse one. So I want us to think about this, that this city, Jerusalem, that becomes the seat of David's throne. And also the place of Solomon's temple, the dwelling place of God on planet Earth, the place of atonement, the place of sacrifice. I want you to think about this. Think closely out of everywhere on planet Earth that the temple could pop up out of everywhere on planet Earth. It shows up on the same piece of ground that was marked 
by this prophetic name on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And then time moves forward. And for millennia and hundreds of years, there is a ram, a lamb, an atonement sacrifice that is given once a year on this mountain. On the day of atonement, that that is to put away the sin of God's people. And I want us to think about that. Man, out of all the places that the day of atonement can happen and the sacrifice that put a, that's to put away sin could, could be sacrificed out of all places. It's why here? Why now? Why the same piece of ground? And I want us to think about is that is that the fulfillment of this prophecy? Is that what God had in mind when he said on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided that he had in mind the temple of Solomon and the day of atonement and lambs dying year after year. And this certainly fits into that prophetic stream, but is not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And we know that because the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, it cannot take away sin. It cannot take away sin. All those are are shadows. Those sacrifices for sin are shadows that point forward to one, the one and only sacrifice that can put away sin. Every day of atonement, every lamb that was slaughtered for the sins of the people is pointing forward through time as a shadow to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that dies for the sins of the world. So I want you to think about this. What happens when Jesus arrives? The one whom we love, the one who has saved our soul. The skull crushing seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He's here. He came. He's on planet earth. He's ready to do his work. And John the Baptist heralds out. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is here. The sacrifice that God has provided. He's here. He's here. And I want you to think about. When he gets ready to do his holy work, his holy work, the once, once for all sacrifice that puts away sin forever out of everywhere in the entire universe that the Lamb of God bled out and died and gave his life. Where does it happen? Where does it happen? It happens on the same mountain. Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, the same mountain that was marked with this prophetic name that on this mount, God's going to provide a substitute. Historically, we have a high degree of confidence that we know almost exactly where the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life with less than a 0.1 mile variance of exactly where Jesus dies on top of Mount Zion. In fact, there's strong historical evidence that the exact spot is marked today by what is called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. This goes back to the first century that Christians began to gather around this geographic location and remember 
the slaughtering of the only Son of God. And so I want to bring us back into Genesis 22. We have prophecy. God is prophesying that something is going to happen on, on a piece of geography, on, on, on a piece of land on planet Earth. And I want to ask you this. Is all that just a co- coincidence? Like, man, how, man, that's, that's a coincidence of Genesis 22, temple of God, crucifixion of Christ, same exact place. Is that what we want to say about that? Just a coincidence, man. You know, everybody gets something right every once in a while. That's a hard sell. Genesis 22 is God calling his shot. Okay? We're way past the history channel at this point. We're talking about the God that reaches through time, calls his shot through time, and 3,000 years before the crucifixion of Christ, he says, right here. Right here, on this mountain, it will be provided. And then 3,000 years unfold, and boom, God provides the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Praise to His holy name. Praise to His holy name. Everything on top of Mount Zion, it fits inside this plot of land that, that, that's less than a, the, a, a one square mile uh, of area. Everything is jam-packed right at the top. You have the temple is there. In Jesus' day, you had Herod's palace is there. In Jesus' day, you had the entire city wall of Jerusalem is at the top of Mount Zion. And on top of this mountain, just outside these city walls, the one and only Son of God carried His wooden cross to the top of this rocky mound called Golgotha. And he took his place as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Except for this time, there was no intervention. The wrath of God was completely poured out on Jesus. Nothing was left. He paid the full price for our sin. The Father doesn't hold back at the crucifixion of Christ. Doesn't happen. The Father is pleased in this holy moment, in this holy atonement, to crush His Son. And He does it for sinners like you and like me. And in this holy moment, Jesus, not only is He willing to give His life for the sins of the world, He actually does it. And the Lamb of God bleeds out for the sins of the world In this same exact spot. And God made good on his word. God provided a sacrifice for sin. And once this happens. All other pathways to God are absolute nonsense. God slaughtered the son. Think about how silly that would be. If there's another way to to God. Why in the world would God slaughter his son? This is it. This is the only way to God. The only sacrifice for sin. The only way to be made right with God. And I want us to see that. I want us to look at that with fresh eyes today. Look at what God has done for us. Look at how gracious God has been to us. He didn't even withhold His only Son from us. And He provided a lamb that was slaughtered instead of us. 
This is the gospel. This is why we rise every week and begin to praise his name. Nothing in us is worthy. Jesus came and he died in our place. Every single one of us were in the same place as Isaac. We're under the knife of God's wrath because of our sins. We're just a moment away from a just death for our sins. And God provides that lamb in love and in mercy. Nothing in us deserves it. God provided us a lamb that he could die under the wrath of God instead of us. This is our substitute. Our bloody sacrifice for sin. The atonement for all the sins of all believers of all time. The Bible teaches us that all who respond to this sacrifice by trusting in Jesus. They will be forever and finally saved and with God throughout all eternity. And that same Bible tells us that all who spurn this sacrifice. The slaughtering of the Son of God. They will be eternally condemned away from God forever. And this sacrifice is cutting a divide and a line through all of humanity. Of where you stand with God is now governed by what you do with these words and this sacrifice of God's only Son being given for the sins of the world. It's so costly and it's so central In all of human history that the Bible teaches us in Revelation chapter 5 that we're going to worship Jesus for this one act forever and ever and ever. For millions of ages, there will be multitudes that no human being can number and they will gather around Christ in eternity and we will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And it all happens on this holy mountain that's marked by God in Genesis 22. In closing, I want want us to see just a few more things. God responds in verse 15. God responds to Abraham's obedience. And he seals his promise. In verse 15, he seals his promise with an oath. This is the God of the Bible making things more sure. So if he said, if the God of the Bible says, I will bless you, you can take it to the bank. But if he says, I swear I will bless you, you can take it to the bank twice. Okay, he's making things more sure. And he leans in and he does that. And he gives Abraham an oath okay, to multiply his offspring and bless all the nations of the earth in him. Hebrews comments back on the, on this same story and it and it tells us what's happening here. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 says this, an oath is final for confirmation. An oath is final for confirmation. And so that's what happens when the God of scripture swears. It's done. What was already sure in the promises of God to Abraham is made absolutely certain. It's done. At this point, the promises are double sealed and he will multiply the offspring of Abraham. In Abraham, he will bring a blessing to every nation of the earth. And then we have this list of names at the end of the chapter. And what those names tell us is is they tell us about the family that Isaac, that son that was about to be killed, that was delivered. God provided a lamb instead of Isaac. It tells us about the family that Isaac's future wife, Rebecca, is going to come from. 
Okay. And what the what what the reader of Genesis and what we're being prepared for as we transition is the reader is being prepared for this covenant God, these covenant promises, this covenant narrative is the baton is about to be passed to another generation. And just as God was faithful to Abraham, these promises, these certain promises, they're going to be just as sure and just as good to the next generation of Isaac and Rebecca. And we can follow these things from our perspective. We can follow these promises down throughout all of human history. And we can see that God made good on his word. God made good on his word. He multiplied the offspring of Abraham. And we're standing in the midst of the moment in church history that God is bringing blessing to all the nations of the earth through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. So the thing that God is telling us is in this passage is he's, he's showing us I can be trusted. I am a God who can be trusted. And this is this. This is what these pictures of God's faithfulness are meant to produce in us, that our God can be trusted. If you're an unbeliever here today or a nominal Christian here today, we want to tell you as Grace Community Church that we love you. We love you in sincerity. We love you. We love your soul. We love the God who created you. We love that you're an image bearer of God. And we want you to know Christ. We are convinced from the word of God that you are made for him. You are made for Jesus. And I just want to leave you with this question today, if that's you. What more could God have done in your life than what he's done? Think about that this morning. What, what more could God have done to show himself worthy of your trust, worthy of your obedience, worthy of your everything? Without anyone in this room meriting it or anyone in this room having any claim on this God, this God gave his son for sinners. What more could he possibly give? I want you to consider that this morning, that he has given everything. He has withheld nothing from you. He's given you the son. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, I want us to think about this. Has not God given us the best of gifts? Has not God taken care of our greatest need? Has not God given the son for us? And listen, not only giving us the son, but all this prophetic trail for thousands of years where he's screaming to human beings through the prophets of old. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Boom. I did it. He's given us the son. And since he's given us the son, he's trustworthy. He's taking care of our deepest need, the atonement for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, my question to leave you with today is this God can be trusted. And if he's taking care of our greatest need and he's not withheld his only son from us, can we not trust him for everything else that follows? Can we not trust him for everything else that follows? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and we'll close with these words. Romans chapter 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?
Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to magnify the work of Jesus today. God, we ask that you would cause these words in Genesis 22 to bear fruit in our life, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds. God, may they kindle affections for Christ. Lord, remind every one of us today of the peril that you rescued us from through the work of Jesus. And God, we remember that there's joy with the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents of their sin. And we ask God that you would do that today. That as Christ is preached, that you would make him glorious all across this room. In Jesus' name, amen.